Rothschild, and you're listening to Podcast 19 from 538. For months, we've kept our eyes on the various vaccines that are marching towards approval from the FDA. This week, we learned that one company in this race, AstraZeneca, is pausing its COVID vaccine trial after one volunteer developed a type of spinal inflammation called transverse myelitis. Today, we'll be talking about what happens during a pause like this and what it means for AstraZeneca and all the other vaccine trials out there. To discuss these questions and more, I spoke with, well, I'll let her introduce herself. My name is Maria Elena Botazzi, and I'm co-director of Texas Children's Center for Vaccine Development at Baylor College of Medicine in Houston, Texas. Thank you so much for joining me today, Dr. Batazzi. I'm very grateful to be speaking with you. Thank you so much for the opportunity. It's always a pleasure. So this week, we, we got news that AstraZeneca stopped its phase three COVID vaccine trial for safety reasons. Can you um, tell us a little bit about uh, what happened? Well, I think, first of all, it, it didn't really stop. It, it was just paused. Uh, certainly in this case was a very specific um, example because there was a one individual who had a um, severe adverse reaction. And so what normally happens is there is a process. The individual, of course, reports, the investigator reports, and then there's an independent committee, the Data Safety Bo uh, Monitoring Board. And usually, uh, depending on what the uh, information is or the situation is, they, they say, sure, we'll continue, but we're going to investigate. Or in this case, let's pause, let's find out uh, before, you know, proceeding with doing additional um, activities. And um, I think that it's important that, you know, it's, it's not uncommon that these things happen. Of course, when they are related to something that is a potential severe uh, adverse uh, event, you want to be very cautious that, of course, you try to determine if it's causative of the vaccine or if it's just that it happened because this individual just would have had it regardless of the vaccine. Right. In this case, um, this woman in the UK experienced um, spinal inflammation, I think. Is that a known adverse effect of some vaccines? Certainly, I'm not a physician. You know, I'm not you know an expert in transverse myelitis, but uh, based on what I understand, um, it's not a common effect, and I think that's the reason why they probably said, "Look, let's really pause for a second and uh, evaluate really if we could even identify is this something that the individual had an underlying uh, risk and and the reason why this happened." or this individual already had another, um, something else that triggered it, or if it really can be linked to the, to the vaccination. How long after vaccination do we usually see adverse effects if they're going to occur? You know, you can find an event um, immediately once you vaccinate, uh, or you can actually won't see any events or any um, long-term uh, impact unless you follow such individuals for, you know, six months, a year or two years. And that is why we think that, you know, these large phase three trials need to um, go through its entire completion for us to get a, a full picture. By the time a vaccine makes it into a phase three trial, it's already been extensively tested in two other phases. Um, and the phase three, you know, one of the main goals is to, to see if the vaccine actually works the way it's supposed to and protects you from the virus. 
How common is it to stop a phase three trial for safety reasons? Well, you made a good point. Yes, indeed, you had initial safety evaluations when you did the, when you do the phase ones, and of course, you continue doing safety evaluations in phase two. Um, and and each step, each stage has its own little purpose. They certainly also uh, look at you know schedule of vaccination, age range of the vaccinations. But remember, the early stages are in very small number of people. And so remember, everything is a statistics also number, right? To detect the one for every, in this case, 30,000 or one in the 100,000 or one in a million, right? Whatever the risk benefit ratio is going to be. And that's why it's essential to then do these phase three large studies because they don't only, of course, are going to look at the effective, uh, the eff- efficacy of such vaccines, but they continue looking at the safety and, and in fact identify things that may not be common in a few you know, tens or hundreds, but that they become more um, common when you see thousands of people. I know also that there's been a lot of talk with this vaccine about how, you know, one vaccine might not be good for every single person. Maybe certain people with specific underlying conditions may not be able to take a vaccine or older people might not be able to take a a certain vaccine. So is it possible that um, this this vaccine is totally safe, but this particular individual is from a, a population that um, may not be approved for this vaccine in the future. Yes, absolutely. I mean, I think that's why uh, we think that the value uh, of of having a menu of different vaccines being evaluated and ideally even potentially licensed is because one vaccine and even one formulation, right? One platform, one vaccine, one schedule, one dose, whatever it is, may not be uh, appropriate for absolutely everybody, right? That menu of different vaccines Dr. Batazzi is talking about, it's actually a smorgasbord. There are over 300 different vaccine candidates in development around the world. Each of them works by making your immune system think it's encountered the virus. But there are many different ways to make that happen, which scientists call platforms. You can think of them like serving trays, presenting the vaccine to your immune system. The serving tray that AstraZeneca is using is called an adenovirus. It's a virus that can't reproduce or make you sick, but has been genetically engineered to contain the blueprint for COVID's spike protein. This tricks your body into thinking it's met the actual coronavirus and teaches it how to fight the real thing. It's a cool technology, but this platform has never been used before in a licensed human vaccine. So I asked Dr. Batazzi, is it possible that uh, the platform itself versus the the coronavirus proteins are um, what could be causing some adverse effects? Absolutely. I mean, that's the reason why in this, in the case of adenoviruses or other uh, of these, uh, what we call experimental platforms, we, 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 they have been a lot of attempts. Um, and the reason why they may not have worked may not necessarily mean that the platform doesn't work. It just means that they haven't found, um, you know, a, 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 an effect and a, and a safety profile that was merited to, you know, license another vaccine. I know they've tried them for HIV and they've tried them for 
other pathogens, right? Assuming that this adverse effect was caused by this vaccine, it's possible that it was caused by this particular platform, the adenovirus platform. But is it also possible that it's something about the spike protein itself, the coronavirus itself, that's caused this adverse effect? Everything can be possible, right? Um, you know, I agree. And in, in the fact that we don't have a lot of uh, prior experience um, uh, with the platform nor the coronavirus in itself, right? Uh, you know, it, it, it's, uh, it opens up more questions, right? And we don't know if it's indeed the viral vector in itself or the viral vector combined with the sequence of the virus or the actual sequence of the virus, right? So it's uh, a lot of unknowns. This seems like a good time to mention that you yourself are involved in, in creating um, a vaccine for coronavirus. Your um, research focuses on a subunit vaccine. And then I think Baylor, where um, you're affiliated with, they're one of the test sites for Moderna's RNA vaccine as well. The, the vaccines that you're working on and that Baylor's working on are not adenovirus vaccines. But uh, what does this pause in research mean for how those trials might end up being conducted? Would you be looking for these same symptoms um, in, in patients who go through any phase of trials? Um, or, or does this, this uh, side effect that we're seeing with the um, AstraZeneca trial seem super specific to that vaccine? Well, when you do clinical trials, there's, of course, based on the protocol, there is a you know, a clear set of uh, clinical outcomes that you're looking at. So um, I'm sure that if uh, it ends up being reported that this was definitely attributed to a vaccination uh, component, albeit it was an adenovirus, I'm sure everybody would most likely, you know, uh, be more aware of it. Uh, but it's but it's still unclear because we do not know if it's even attributed to being you know being adenovirus or even just being a vaccine in itself. What caused it? In general, once a, a vaccine trial is paused like this, how common is it for it to get restarted? Well, again, it depends on uh, uh, how uh, difficult is the um, the incident and how severe it is the incident, and of course also. Uh, even though this was one one case in one person, uh, if it's severe enough, it could definitely um, stop the the you know the trials if indeed it's, it's, it, it was attributed to the vaccine. But mo- most of the times, um, you have you know these pauses and then you know it's evaluated. It may it may just be that they come and say, indeed, like you said earlier. Um, this may have been an individual who had a very specific uh, underlying uh, risk uh, set of risk factors, uh, but then it may not mean that they would totally stop. Um, there's always these opportunities to update and and um, uh, amend the, the protocol, uh, or you know certainly change uh, to ensure that um, you de-risk and you remove any potential. Um, you know, adverse events as, as this one, for example. Yes. How do scientists go about proving that an adverse event isn't related to a vaccine? Well, that's, you know, it's a very interesting question. And that's why you require, of course, you know, uh, even these independent uh, uh, safety monitoring boards, which have uh, groups of individuals with uh, different expertise, 
you uh, don't look at the incident in, in isolation. You, of course, look at the individual's blood work. You look at the individual's history. You most likely also do a lot of interview. You look at whether there was any precedent uh, of the individual having something before. Uh, you put it in context of what have you been seeing with the other. So there's a lot of, uh, of course, work that, they, that I'm sure they're doing to go deep into doing this so-called investigation. Do those um, evaluations get made public? So will there be a published paper on um, on this particular adverse effect that everyone will be able to read? Or will it be sort of kept under wraps? And generally, when you, of course, complete the whole trial, and of course, everything is being reported to the regulators, you do like a final, you know, clinical study report, and you end up publishing, you, you, your intent is to, of course, publish everything transparently, right? And generally, yes, you, as you identify, including any adverse events, and ultimately, ideally, you're right, it should get published. I assumed that a scientist like Dr. Batazzi might be disheartened by the news that the AstraZeneca trial had been paused, but that wasn't exactly the case more than anything is for the people to understand that this actually, you know, is reassuring. I mean, this, this, if, if it were to happen, you know, it, it was picked up and it was reported the way that it has to and, it, and, the, and they did what they had to do. They, you know, they, they paused, they're looking at the information and soon we will hear back what the next steps are going to be. We, we should never expect to always only hear the, the, the good things uh, in the media, right? You know, that transparency is essential, uh, that we highlight when, you know, there are these pauses, uh, you know, be transparent. Uh, and if indeed we hear uh, that they're going to continue it because there is a very strict uh, review and that decisions are made uh, clearly based on scientific evidence and clear evidence, and that, in fact, the, what, what we need to do is always ensure that we protect the safety of those who are volunteering and eventually those who we will need, will need to use the vaccine. Dr. Batazzi isn't the only person looking at the bright side of this phase three pause. Dr. Francis Collins, the director of the National Institutes of Health, said something similar at a Senate hearing this week. To have a clinical hold, as has been placed on AstraZeneca as of yesterday, because of a single serious adverse event, is not at all unprecedented. This certainly happens in any large-scale trial where you have tens of thousands of people invested in taking part, and some of them may get ill. And you always have to try to figure out, is that because of the vaccine, or were they going to get that illness anyway? So this ought to be reassuring to everybody listening. When we say we are going to focus first on safety and make no compromises, here is exhibit A about how that is happening in practice. We currently have nine COVID vaccines in phase three clinical trials. Given how long it usually takes to make a vaccine, that is a Herculean feat. There are bound to be some roadblocks. It's very possible that this adverse effect has nothing to do with the vaccine. But better to find out now than after millions or billions of people have gotten it. And now for an exciting introduction. Today's show was the first to be edited by our new producer, Sinduja Srinivasan. She comes to us from the United Nations and most recently, Science Versus on Gimlet. 
Sanduja, welcome. Hi, Anna. I'm so excited to be here. <laughs> we are so happy to have you. Um, so, Sanduja, I'm wondering what are the stories that, that you're most interested in telling um, from this pandemic? I've really been thinking a lot about the culture of Corona that sort of surrounds us all. How is this going to affect our art and our literature? We've all already been baking lots of bread. You know, it's already affected our food. <laughs> right. So I'm just, I'm curious, you know, what's going to, what our world is going to look like in the next few months and years. I mean, you know, in terms of culture, one of the things that hasn't escaped either of us is that we're recording this on September 11th, which is, you know, a day that we commemorate a national tragedy where, where many Americans lost their lives. And now, of course, we're in the midst of this, this months-long national tragedy where close to 200,000 Americans have lost their lives. And I guess, you know, one of the things we've been talking about is, like, in the future, how will we, we process that? No, exactly. What's going to be the Corona day, right? Or the day that we remember what this time was like. And and maybe this is just a constant, it'll be a constant remembrance because it is going to affect so many parts of our lives. I mean, apart from it being 9-11 today, it's also, I think, exactly six months since the, since the World Health Organization declared a pandemic, which was on March 11th. I know. I can't believe it's been so long. Well, Sanduja, thank you so much for, for joining me to chat a little bit. I'm really excited to um, hear all of the stories that you produce in the next few weeks and months. Thanks so much, Anna. I'm really looking forward to it. And don't forget to send your emails to us. I've been reading all of them, and I'm excited to talk to more of our listeners about their ideas. That's it for this episode of Podcast 19. I'm Anna Rothschild. Our producer is Sinduja Srinivasan. Chadwick Matlin is our executive producer. If you have a question for the show, send us a voice memo at askpodcast19 at gmail.com. That's askpodcast19 at gmail.com. Thanks. We'll see you next week. <laughs>